There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com. Drive Live Talks Careers. So we have two guests in the studio today with us. Warm welcome to Gordon Barr, who's a partner at Tamimi & Co. Welcome. Good afternoon. Very nice to have you on the show. And we also have Shane Phillips, who's the CEO of the Phillips Group. Shane, great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Always good to see you, Shane. Always a smile on the face, too. <laughs> Love being on the show, so. Good. Okay, so we're talking mainly about CVs and the position when it comes to getting a new job, because I guess the CV is often, for most people, Shane, where it begins. You know, you always hear this advice, make sure, even if you're happy at work, that your CV is in great shape. So, um, would you say it's important uh, if you're thinking about going for a new job or or getting interviews that you have that that CV is sparkling and perfect and ready? Well, um, I I think CVs play a role in the job search process, and I think it's very one has to be very cognizant about what role that CV is actually playing. And I think the main role of the CV is not to highlight your skills and capabilities, but is really to get a meeting for you. Mm. And sometimes you don't need the CV to get a meeting. So if you're if you're um, it it's you know if for example hey, I'm a good friend of yours and you're hiring for your department yeah. and it's a done deal and you just need my CV to show to HR and to the CEO, then I definitely need a sparkling CV, right? But if I'm looking for a new job and I'm going to go online and apply to jobs using my CV, that's probably not going to be a great option for you. Okay. And, and so using the CV uh, to help you get a job won't work in today's market because um, <clears throat> you know the the online space is just flooded with CVs, uh, flooded with templates, and most likely it's going to go into a data bank and never come out again. Okay. okay. How do you feel about obviously uh, CVs on social media? When we look at things like LinkedIn, where people have got their online profiles, how much is that playing a part? I, I, I LinkedIn. I don't know. I'm a bit hit or miss with that platform. To be honest with you, I just, I just get just so many random things on it. Is it a good platform to use for people that are job searching or indeed for employers who are looking for employees to use? Absolutely. I think the I think LinkedIn's actually more important than your than your CV would be today. And I think the you know, it starts with your picture. The first thing that someone sees when they go on your LinkedIn profile is your picture. So, you know, I would suggest go out spend a thousand dirhams, get a professional ph photographer, put a nice suit and tie on, do not have your sunglasses on your head, do not have yourself on the beach doing a jumping jack in the air, the Toyota picture, whatever it is. Just have a very nice professional conservative photo up there. And the other thing that LinkedIn really allows you to do is highlight your thought leadership content and highlight, you know, one of the traits of top performers is being intellectually curious and um, seeking out knowledge about your profession. So you can either be a con content aggregator using your LinkedIn to say, hey, here's three articles from, you know, the the great, great, the three best employment lawyers in the world. This is what they're saying. Or boom, here's a 500 word essay I wrote on the, on the latest legislation governing employment law, you know, if you were an employment lawyer or whatever it is. And I think the new CV now, and, and for example, if we fast forward 20 years, the millennials will be asking, you know, millennials children will be mm. asking, what was a CV? It's going to, it's, it's a vestige of the 19th century. It's, it's following 
falling apart. It's no longer, it's obsolete. The future will be creating thought leadership content online, um, having your own digital footprint that showcases your value proposition to corporations or to businesses. Okay, so Gordon, you work in the legal field. Um, surely a CV is still significant there. It will be a surprise for you to know that, yes, uh, CVs still um, are, are still commonplace in, in our sector. And uh, I mean, the legal industry is making lots of uh, strides in lots of different mm. areas, technology and otherwise. But, but you're right, we still have our HR uh, department where there's a vacancy will forward yeah. an interesting CV for us to 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 consider. And I guess the nature of the nature of the legal field is you need specific qualifications. There's no good. You might know me particularly well, Gordon. You might think, oh well, Natalie would be a great asset to the company, but I have no legal experience, so I couldn't apply for a job in that kind of role anyway. So it's slightly different. I get what you're saying, Shane. For certain roles, it can be who you know rather than what you know sometimes. But for something like legal or medical professionals, you also need to have those credible uh, qualifications to back it up. Yeah, because the, the, the foot in the door is the competency-based um, resume whereby yeah. you can you can identify where somebody studied, how which firms they've worked for, how long they've stayed at those firms. And, you know, that's your original snapshot. And you think, OK, well, that, that is or isn't a good fit for this role. Um, experience and so forth, and 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 then you would decide or not to to, to take it on to stage two. Now, Shane, you wanted I, to. Yeah, I'm just <laughs> curious to ask Gordon. You know, how did you get your job? Did you apply with your CV online? Were you referred through a friend? Were you headhunted? You know, the 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 first of those. I um, seven years ago applied online. Online, yeah. wow. So yeah. I stand corrected. Then yeah, so You're one of the few. Yeah, yeah, but um, it happens. You know. It happens in some in some fields. It is still necessary now. Obviously, the CV is one part, but what we're thinking about here is okay. You've got the foot in the door. Whether it's a CV, whether it's a contact, whether it's from contacting the CEO and saying, "Look, we need to have a coffee, and I want to tell you about this," or "I've read this article about your company, and this is how I think you should be doing it better." Shane, one of the examples you might suggest. And um, what happens when you get that conversation, whether it's a coffee or whether it's an interview? How should you play it then, Shane? Well, I think the first thing is you should demonstrate your excitement, passion and energy for the company, for the brand and for the industry and the huge value that that industry plays in the larger part of society. And having been well researched on, you know, if I'm going for a radio presenter job, well, I should probably know how the radio was invented and what role radio played in the shaping of of society. So I have a much larger picture. So I have depth to myself as a candidate. And what role does, you know, Dubai I play in the larger context of the of Arab society and bringing a perspective, a local perspective of things to the, the point? And then how does that tie into whereas where am I going as a human being? Where do I want to go with my life? What what's my life's work actually going to be and how does this role tie into that eternal passion that fosters within me? That I think is a very good approach. Just, what, unfortunately, what a lot of people do is they just show up mm. and and they go, you know, Gordon mentioned when he talked about a CV was very, very important things was brands. So he was not saying, do you have a university degree? He was asking which university you graduated from. Yeah. He didn't say how much legal experience you have. He said, which law firms are you look, are working at? And the so the, it's about brands 
and uh, and results. So sometimes people who have come from big schools and have big brands, they show up and they have a very flat affect and it's a big turnoff. So, you know, energy is what produces results. So if we're gonna be the number one radio station in the world, that's a huge amount of work to achieve that. It takes a huge amount of energy. So we want people who are, gonna ener- who are energized and energizing. Mm. How would you, how do you, cause- Interviews are always a really, really tough thing. Some people interview really, really well and other people get the nerves and the jitters and, you know, the sweaty palms and everything. It's a massively daunting thing to go to an interview. I mean, I've had the more from interviews, you know, in posh offices and all the rest of it to literally sitting over coffee and cake. It's, you know, one extreme to mm. the other. So how, what would advice would you give the, the basic tips for someone to prepare and make sure they're ready for this interview? Sure. I would say, first of all, you know who 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 interviews very well is a con man, and and which goes to your point that it's not the best person who gets the job; it's the best convincer. Mm-hmm. And um, so, in preparing yourself, is first of all put pen to paper. You know, for example, ninety percent chance you're going to get asked, "Tell me about yourself." You're going to get asked, you know, what was your bi- biggest results or your biggest management challenge. You'll know what the the like the ten most common questions for your industry are. Write them out, write out answers, and then take your smartphone, videotape yourself delivering the answer, and then re-deliver the same answer over and over and over again until you can't take it anymore. And concise that down to two or three minute answer. Don't have any answers more than two minutes. And uh, then the piece I would add on to that is sculpting. So you may feel something's very exciting, but to the audience, the interviewer is looking for other information. And so the interviewer is going to come to the interview wanting to qualify you for the job because they have other things they want to do. Nobody wants to sit there interviewing people for a week. So they're coming to, so they will actually help you if you stop what you're, when you're, you're saying, listen, tell me about yourself. Yes, I'd love to tell you about myself. Do you want me to start with my recent work in Saudi Arabia or what I've been doing lo- locally here in Dubai? So give them a chance to guide you is the other piece that uh, I would really suggest. And Gordon, I mean, do you echo those sentiments or is it kind of a different approach when it comes to interviewing in, in a legal sort of setting? No, I, I, I would echo um, what Shane mentioned in the sense that I think that the two categories of, of areas that you really are looking for for a candidate is whether or not they're prepared and whether or not they're showing the enthusiasm that, mm. that Shane mentioned. And, uh, you know, there is nothing more off-putting than somebody coming for a role in, for example, this jurisdiction with a wealth of experience in another jurisdiction who hasn't applied their mind as to how... What might be different. Exactly, what might be different. Um, and, and that might not just be in respect of the subject matter of the, the role, but just culturally, or hasn't really put themselves in the position of being here before they come in uh, and been able to talk in a, an informed way about what the role might look like, how they might add to your organisation. Um, and on the, the enthusiasm side, I mean, we, you know, we'll, we've all been situations where you've had a very good candidate, ticks all the boxes. We talked about the, the, the resume and what it looks like and how impressive it might be. And then they, they present themselves and it's just like an energy vacuum. And you think to yourself, I'm going to be working with this individual, sometimes particularly in the legal industry for long <laughs> hours in a particular day. Do I want to be rubbing shoulders with them yeah. for 12 hours a day? Mm. Uh, working on a deal, transaction, a litigation, whatever it might be. And, and, and that is something which very much features in the interviewer's uh, mind. There's also an onus on the interviewer, going back yeah. to what you said, Emma, yeah. about making the person mm. who's being interviewed feel comfortable as well, um, which is um, an art 
in itself just to try and get the best out of that individual during that interview. Okay, we're continuing the conversation on Drive Live Talks Careers. Two guests in the studio today, Shane Phillips, the CEO of the Phillips Group, and Gordon Barr, who's a partner at Tamimi and Co. If you've asked a question about where's best to look for job roles across Europe, if you're asking questions about visas, we'll get to your questions next and continue the conversation in terms of the art of getting a job. Drive Live Talks Careers. We are talking careers on the show today. We have two guests in the studio with us, Shane Phillips, the CEO of the Phillips Group, and also Gordon Barr, partner at Tamimi & Co. So we've got quite a few questions to get through and a few more areas to cover in terms of interview, securing that role, what you need to do, and some of the mistakes that might be uh, shooting you in the foot, for want of a better phrase. First of all, uh, Gordon, we'll come to you with this question. It's about uh, visas. Many of us here are reliant upon our employment for our residency status, our visas, the fact that many of our family depends on that too. Now, this question from Amar is asking about the fact that sometimes some employers can take advantage of the fact that you need that visa in order to stay. Uh, is there any recourse for, for an employee legally if they feel their employee is taking advantage and dangling this sort of visa um, and the fact that if they don't perform or they don't accept the conditions, the visa can be taken away. Yeah, so we talked about this a little bit off off air. It's a, it's a quite a general question, but um, and no doubt there are unscrupulous employers in the region. So there are commonly stories about employers retaining employees' passports and so on and so forth, which they're not supposed to do. Um, and no doubt employers do use... Um, the unequal bargaining power to put employees in, in difficult situations. But that doesn't mean to say that there isn't a legal framework that employees can have recourse to. Yeah. Um, obviously, when we're not in a jurisdiction where there isn't an evolved legal system, there is, um, whether that's through the under underlying laws, which employee, employees can um, avail of, or, or if that's not possible and, and by uh, amicable um, means it's not been possible to resolve whatever the issue may have been with the employer. There's a court system that they can they can uh, they can make take advantage of. Now, again, there's there's issues around that because um, obviously it's a, it's a it's a last resort to have to go to court, and there are costs associated with that course of action. So yes, no doubt there is unscrupulous employers out there, and we see that in our practice, uh, who sometimes do seek to take advantage of employees, but there are, there are um, means uh, upon which employees can can take steps. So, for example, there's the Ministry of Labour or Ministry of uh, Human Resources and Amortisation, which an employee can go to now uh, and and file a complaint. Uh, within the free zones, there are uh, labour offices where mm. uh, within each free zone, an employee can go and file a complaint. And that doesn't have to be on termination of employment. It can be prior to that uh, time, yeah. Yeah, I said another thing that you can do is just go on LinkedIn and then you can set the setting to people who used to work at that company, call them up and say, I was thinking of working there. Can I have coffee with you? I'd love to find out what that environment is like mm. and do some real detailed research mm -hmm. before you jump into a company. And a lot of companies they, I've heard, I have so many horror stories like this where not only that, but they'll withhold par part of your salary. Yeah. They do all kinds of nasty things knowing that the second you go and file a labor case, that it's going to be the end of your career there. And, you know, now the job market is in rough shape, so it's hard to find another position. And so there are 
you know, certain types of companies who take advantage of this. So you have to do your research before joining. Okay. Um, we have a question for you, actually, Shane. No name on this one. This is, hi, we're looking to leave the UAE for family reasons, cost of living, school, etc. Where is best to look for positions in Europe? And where would you say the most family-friendly cities? Well, Geneva has the highest salaries per capita in the entire world. So having a high salary is always will always make you happier, despite what some people tell you. Is this and- a joke? <laughs> <laughs> What's family friendly about a high salary? Well, because if you want your kid to go to Harvard, uh, you got to pay the price, right? So okay. that's very family friendly. The more money you have, the, m- the more you can take care of your family, the better health care you can get for your family, the better education you can get for your family. And that's what I call family friendly. Um, it- <laughs> they also, depending if you like the cold, Norway is a nice choice. I think Donald Trump prefers Norway, apparently. So. Expensive, though. Norway, insanely expensive Shane, to live Shane, I really there. honestly want to come over there. And, yeah. Why, you're not a Trump supporter? I'm on about the fact that you think family-friendly means higher salary. What about quality of living? What about work-life balance? But quality of living, okay, if you want to have, for example, the, the highest quality foods in your home, it costs money. If you want to have what? Oh, the, extra curri- the extracurricular activity, well, it's a fact that rich kids have an advantage in life because they go to geography class and the other kids are looking at a map and the rich kid has actually gone to South America. He's visited the Aztec temple and he's much more going to be much more engaged about history and geography. You, you want to get um, tutors, they, math tutors. Are they just tutors. putting it on Instagram? Yeah. And well, also, of course, it, when you visit a, great, a place, you become much more engaged, right? A great education is easily squandered by someone that doesn't appreciate it, yeah. so it doesn't matter. Well, yeah, of course, if they have no ambition or drive. But it's a fact of the matter that if you want to pay for gymnastics, dance class, sports, and everything else, there's a, there's a huge price tag that comes with all of that. And you can't say that higher-income families have an advantage and that the kids have an advantage that they get to, to take all these courses and you know you want to go to school overseas there's a huge price tag you don't know how many talented candidates i have who were not able to go to a tier 1b school so they're not allowed, so they can never be investment bankers or they're never going to get into goldman sachs but you know when you look at their intellectual capability it was far and beyond as you mentioned some of the guys who are graduating from these schools so it, it, it is an advantage, I think. You know, a lot of people like to pretend that money doesn't make you happy. And those are generally people who don't have money who say that. Okay, so Patrick <laughs> Patrick is saying he lived in Geneva in the 90s and um, in the late two, well, early 2010, 12. And he said, yeah, there is a higher salary in Geneva, but the higher rents and cost of living is insane. And he said, you're being a bit simplistic about this, Shane. Well, it's pretty simple. Like, okay, I'm not a specialist on where you should raise your family in Europe. I'm a specialist in the employment market in the Middle East. And, and, and I could tell you, you know, where are the cities now to, to move your career to? And I think when you look at the GCC, you know, uh, I think Saudi Arabia becomes one of the more interesting markets as we look forward over the next five years where you're mm. really seeing uh, interesting growth. And I think some of the other cities have kind of flattened out and we're not seeing the kind of growth that we, that we, would, that we would like if you want to have a bustling career. I wouldn't actually turn to Europe. In fact, you know, I think you're better off going east, looking, looking to uh, other geographies. I mean, is Europe really going to do that well as we go 
through the next five yeah. years. It's not really that a, 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 of an exciting story. My clients right now are turning to Vietnam. They're going into the, the Southern Pacific Rim, uh, Malaysia, Indonesia, uh, China. These are the these are the these are the futures. I have one of my very high profile CEOs. He's sending his daughter to uh, do her masters in China, mm. over U.S. Right. So why is this person talking about Europe? No one's talking about Europe. It's a hard question to answer because you don't know what that person's, what they want for their family, what kind of lifestyle and all that kind of uh, thing that they have. We don't know what career they're in, anything. We don't have any more information than that. Okay, Gordon, um, let's come to you with some of these uh, details. So we've been talking a bit about how to get a foot in the door, how to be successful at interviewing, but let's look at it from the other perspective. What happens if you're the employer and you make a bad hire. This person's performed fantastically well in interview. Their CV looks sparkling. However, uh, you know, what happens if they're just maybe perhaps not the right fit for the company or, you know, they talked a good game, but when it actually came to performing, they weren't too great. Yes, which is all too common, isn't it? That that, that, that happens. Not necessarily, as Shane said, the best candidate will get the job, but the best uh, presenter at interview might well get the job. Um, and, you know, a, a lot of the uh, work can be uh, front-loaded in terms of avoiding that situation. So you're going to want to make sure that your offer letter um, is uh, offer of employment is conditional upon references checking out, um, and you're going to want to have a diligent human resources recruitment function to actually follow up and make sure that references are checking out. Um, you are going to want to make sure that as part of an exhaustive interview process, you've had all of your key stakeholders that have bought into that individual because then you're going to find if he does prove to be a bad hire or she does prove to be a bad hire, there's internal um, wrangling over whose fault it was for the hire in the first place. Um, you're going to want to ensure that in the employment contract, you've got a probationary period. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the UAE, you can have up to a maximum of a, a six-month uh, probationary period, which is there for the purposes of obviously making sure that the... Um, the the statements made and the projections made by the individual during the interview process actually result in um, in a sort of tangible uh, work product and uh, they they are a good fit for your organisation. So yeah, that that that's the sort of steps you'd want to take. And can I add on to that? It's just because I go onto a lot of expat forums, and it's a it's a point that comes up quite a lot, um, where people have gone, okay, I've been accepted a job with one company, uh, but now I've got an offer from somewhere else. Can I legally, without any recourse, ignore company A and go to company B? Or even people have gone past this stage, and they're in. They've started the work, they've started the job, they're in the probation, and then they've gone. But now I've got a better offer. Can I leave? Where does that leave an employer? Is there any comeback for an, an employer uh, against an employee where this has happened? There is because the probationary period is um, in the. So, so looking at it in two st- steps, I suppose one is where there's an offer letter which has been issued, um, and the the offer left letter has been accepted. Um, quite often at that point, there isn't a binding contract, so may depend upon how the, the offer and acceptance has been worded. But quite often there isn't a binding contract at that point. So if you did identify you had a, um, uh, another role which was more attractive that you wanted to accept as a, as a candidate, then it, oftentimes there's little the employer can do in that scenario. When the, the, when the employment has, has begun, and um, we mentioned probation periods beforehand, of, often they are probation periods in favour of the employer. So if the employee decides that he or she wishes to 
to leave in the, in the early part of the employment, then there can be a number of financial consequences to the employee of doing that, dependent upon whether the contract is limited or unlimited, um, whereby they have to provide notice. If they don't provide notice, the employer can seek to recover um, the pay in lieu of notice from the employee. Um, one thing that the employer can't do, which many employers in the region seek to do is recover visa costs that have been associated with the hire. That's mm-hmm. a question we get quite a lot, actually. I've been told if I want to leave or if I don't complete my probation period, uh, you know, they will keep the hiring costs, but that's not possible. It, it's not possible to for the employer to recoup um, mm. visa costs, um, even though you sometimes do see employers wanting to insert that Try. sort of wording in the employment contract, which goes back to your point before about employers or the caller's point about employers trying to sort of handcuff employees into certain roles. But it's not possible to recoup visa costs. It is possible to recoup training costs. So if you, for example, onboarded an individual sent them to an external training course at cost to you as an organization and then you know five minutes later the individuals jumped jumped ship yeah provided you've made provision for that in your in your contractual documentation then the employer can recover those costs okay um just um a couple of texts came in uh pete says uh the the money the cash is king views of your career advisor is bordering on abhorrent um i wouldn't accept one of his placements based on the values he is demonstrating on your show now, Shane, on the other hand, Patrick says, well answered, definitely East Asia. Well done. So two opposing views on your uh, directions there, Shane. On Well, I think when you look at, um, you know, some people say money is not the most important thing. And I would say they're right. The most important thing is power. And what you want to do is secure the power base and, uh, and, and, and secure your getting the grasp of the center of gravity of power within the organization. And as your power grows, money will follow. And as the power and money grows, happiness will be there for you always. So, I, I, you know. Shane, I, <laughs> <laughs> Shane, I just honestly, please don't, don't. Because, I mean, you're laughing, so you don't, you're not quite as bad as you're making out. I know you're not quite as bad as you make, you're making out, Shane, rather. But you, you do like to, um, you know, you do like to sort of, try and strike a chord as much as possible. But in all seriousness, you know, your advice about going in particular directions, of course, is is valuable to some people. But I think, you know, money and power, it, it, you know, it's, a, it's definitely a perspective thing. We're continuing careers. We're having a bit of a fight in the studio, to be honest, actually. We have two guests, <laughs> Shane Phillips, the troublemaker, CEO of the Phillips Group, and Gordon Barr, partner to Mimi and Co. And we've been talking a lot about getting your foot in the door, what you need to do to uh, interview well, to be successful. And also from the employer side, what you can do if perhaps that sparkling candidate didn't quite work out uh, so well. Now, Shane, we had a few questions in asking, asking, you know, in terms of good places to look for work. And, you know, what we keep coming back to is your discussion that jobs are all about which pay the most and, you know, how important that is because money and power are at the centre. Yeah, well, I think when you look at success, success is subjective, right? So 
if you're not going to have a lot of information about someone and they're asking you for career advice, then I would give you career advice that's going to help you make more money. But you have to realize that success is imagined just as failure is. So when you come home and you feel defeated or you're having a negative experience in the workplace, that's as as imagined as your successes are. So someone who w- wins a million dollars to a billionaire will be a loss to a regular person might be a huge win. So I think you have to take that in, in, into context. And uh, the other piece of the puzzle is that, you know, what really fuels your happiness is having the freedom to do what you want. And money gives you that freedom. And so if you want to go and open hospitals for, for, for refugee camps and, and help people, that costs a lot of money. And that's something that you see people like Bill Gates or Warren Buffett, they really get to self-actualize. And that is only possible through money. I was just reading the book on how uh, the founder of Marriott, and he and he's a workaholic. And he talks about how his Marriott hotels have transformed places, you know, fringe economies where he was the first Western hotel there. And he training and development programs and really helped the local populations there develop and have proper careers. And now he has international managers from some of these geographies where they were literally had very meager means. That is all on the back of money. When Mother Teresa was doing her humanitarian work, it was entrepreneurs and businessmen who donations made that possible. The bedrock of the economy and the biggest spearhead of humanitarian efforts on the face of the planet today are done on the back and the sweat of the brow of the entrepreneur who's there making money. So wake up tomorrow and go after it and get yours. I feel like I'm watching like a film, a caricature of someone talking about money. For the benefit of people that can't see because you're listening on the radio, Shane is laughing and smiling as he says these things. I do believe he believes them. But Gordon, I mean, there's a bit more of a human side in terms of being successful at work and whether that only comes from financial reward. Yeah, and we, I think one of the questions before was people having to move because of um, for family-friendly reasons and Part of that is financial, obviously. Yeah. And and part of it is the environment that you work in. And look, we've seen in the UAE efforts to make the environment more family friendly. Part time working introduction um, uh, with with contracts to allow you to, you to do so. So there are changes around the the fringes of the the, the legislation um, in the UAE to try and make a more friendly environment, uh, family friendly environment. And yeah, I think that. Uh, Finance is part of it, but if it was the only aspect to consider, then you wouldn't have HR departments, recruitment functions, fretting night and day about flexible working policies, home working, mm. what they can do to encourage women coming back um, from maternity leave to come back into the workplace in a more gradual way or whatever it might be. So, yeah, finance indisputably is, for all of us, something that's, you know, at the forefront of our minds when we're thinking about moves, about our careers and so on and so forth. But it's probably, and I don't think Shane's making the point that that is the only consideration and it would be too simplistic to say it is, but there is a whole range of other aspects that also that also factor in. Because if it were the only consideration, then no one would work part-time. Yeah. And uh, I mean, Shane, you have to take, uh, you know, if I were to offer you two jobs and one of them paid um, 10% higher, they were doing pretty much the same role. The companies uh, were, you know, of a similar size. The role wasn't too dissimilar. Let's just take two random companies. Um, However, the one that was paying 10% less uh, gave you better um, 
annual leave programs, uh, more time off, um, flexible, more flexible working hours, uh, better provisions for, um, you know, development. Would you still take the one that paid you 10 percent more? Yeah. So if you take, say, a, a salary base of one hundred thousand dollars a year, a 10 percent difference over 15 years, uh, because you have to realize what you come in at every raise after that is based on that base number. That's your baseline. If we just to just keep things simple, say you stay with that company for 15 years. Nobody That's, does that anymore, Shane. No, but I'm just Nobody saying. Nobody does that anymore. It just keeps the math simple. No, no, no. I'm asking you okay, if I offered gets you worse. those two jobs. It gets worse if I go with you. So so if I, if we want to do what you're saying, it will be actually your, uh, to your disfavor, but I'll do it. So basically at 10% over 15 years is over a million dollars cash that you're throwing out the window, right? And so if it, you have children, you're thinking it's throwing cash out the window by having flexible time. Do you think when they're older, they look at you and think, gosh, I'm so glad my dad earned a bit more money? Or do you think they think, well, at least he was able to play and at least he was able to come and watch me, you know, do sports at the weekend or watch me do um, a theatre performance. What that's do you a decision. Think is- that's a decision you have to make. But what happens is a lot of candidates, especially ones who are not, you know, highly financially literate, they'll say 10% is not a lot because it's $10,000 over an annual salary. So you're looking at like $800 a month. So people will say that it's only $800 a month, but you have to realize over 15 years, it's a million dollars. And if you're changing jobs after four years, an internal, you're getting probably about three to 5% increase in your salary if you stay. When you change jobs, it's about 15%. So if you're changing jobs every four years, you're looking at throwing away about $2 million. So, So you have to make that call. And if you don't, if you wanna be home with your kid, and you don't want to work, that's a decision that you make. And that's how you define success. I'm not saying which one I would rather vie for. What I'm saying is be aware of what exactly the cost is of not going in. And that's why I'm saying when you negotiate your salary, a lot of people don't negotiate. Number one rule of your salary negotiation is don't accept the first offer. Never accept the first offer. Even if it's you go in and try to get that extra 10%. So, you know, if the two companies were the same and one was giving you flexible work hours, why not go in and try to negotiate up that other 10%? Don't throw it on the table. Don't walk away. It's not just 10%. Okay, that's probably where we need to leave it. Uh, Gordon's shaking his head. Um, Thank you very much, Shane Phillips, the CEO of the Phillips Group. Good to have you on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And thanks to Gordon Barr. He's a partner at Tamimi and Coswell. Thanks to him. Thanks very much. Okay, that's it for Drive Live Talks Careers this week. There's just so much more to hear. Download our podcasts at DubaiEye1038.com.